seem like you guys are enjoying. Me too. <laughs> so, um, so tonight, uh, so any, any of you never been to Chandra's class before? Like, you know what we're doing? Okay, so a few people. So Chandra's been teaching on this text called the Seven Point Mind Training, which is a text from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition on <clears throat> what we call Lojong. So Lojong's like a, a corpus of teachings, uh, mainly from a, a kind of a now sort of non-existent lineage called the Kadampa lineage. And that lineage is, is what the, the Gelugpa tradition in Tibetan Buddhism sort of formed out of the Kadampa. And then the teachings of Lojong from the Kadampa tradition got brought into all the lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. And basically Lojong means to, to sort of train the mind, right? And they're very specific mind trainings working with more sort of what we call relative bodhicitta, um, and sort of practicing uh, phrases, different ways of transforming a situation. So really it kind of comes down to how we're working to, um, once we see the faults of a, of a sort of attitude that's primarily focused on ourselves and cut off from others, then we train in what's called exchanging oneself with others. And that's what Lojong, the purpose is mainly to do. So it's actually was more, the way I like to talk about it too, because we can be, some of the phrases are harder to practice than others uh, in the seven-point mind training. But um, just with that said, um, understanding that these teachings were actually quite secret for a long time because they were treated more as an advanced practice that once we had a very solid base in meditation and also understanding of like a, a Buddhist philosophy and understanding of motivation and all that, then a practitioner would use these phrases to sort of bring everything in life into the path, right? Um, now they're just taught widely, and w how we can use these phrases is ways to bring Buddhism into our life and bring sort of this transformation of exchanging <coughs> our, own, our own happiness only and starting to sort of think wider and bigger, which again, the purpose is not then to become a doormat. <coughs> the purpose is with the understanding that a primarily self-cherishing attitude actually creates pain for ourselves. So I'd say when I teach Lojong, <clears throat> generally, I say first we kind of have to come to that conclusion. So I'm going to offer you that question for you to think about, not, not as to gain an answer right now, but something to bring home and as like homework to sort of ponder is, is when I primarily, you know, I'm asking myself the question now, but you can ask yourself, when I primarily focus on my own well-being, cut off from the well-being of others, do I actually experience benefit from that, meaning do I, or I should say, ultimate benefit from that. In the short term, it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, there's one of the donuts I love in the donut shop. There's only one left, and I cut the whole line to get the donut. In the short term, I get an awesome donut, right? Win-win, right? But from this perspective, not really, because ultimately it actually does us moral injury, right? So in Buddhism, they don't have the concept of moral injury, so much, but I think it, it can be, um, or, sorry, they have the concept of it, but not the word. You all know what I mean by moral injury? So it's like the little things we do and the, the, our stance in the world that affects how we are as a human being. And then how we are as a human being in relation to others is affecting our own well-being. So this is kind of, we're seeing so much of this nowadays, right? It's, it's so in our face, but at the same time, our culture is often teaching us the opposite. Get more, do more. Um, it's all about you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then it becomes more confusing because a lot of us do need self-care techniques and we do need things for well-being, relaxation, 
de-stressing. But it becomes so confusing, I find. I mean, I'm just talking about my own confusion. You can see if it relates to you. <clears throat> it becomes so confusing because then it's like, well, where, where is self-care helping me? And then where is it harming me? Because I'm just cocooning into my own bubble of selfishness. You see what I'm saying? Can you, is, can you guys relate to what I'm saying? Yeah? I think it's so common nowadays. And so these pra- the lojang particularly, it's a little more hardcore. It's like... First of all, the person sees or the practitioner sees, wow, self-cherishing really sucks. Like it actually is doing me harm. And this is a person who has already well-being. I just want to put that out there. If we start to not be interested in ourselves when we already have a lack of well-being, it's probably not going to work. So that's why Lojang, I feel, has to be, culturally, we have to first have a base of at least understanding that we need well-being as well. But then there's sort of this attitude of, well, how much well-being is enough, right? When, is it, when have I gotten enough? When do I feel good enough to then work with Lojong or these other Buddhist practices? And the truth is, attachment from a, from a Buddhist perspective, attachment never has enough. It's like drinking salt water. We always want more, right? So again, I'm saying that, but I want you to explore that for yourselves, right? You don't have to take that on face value. Um, So it's a little tricky here because culturally, Tibetan culture, which embraced Lojong practice, generally uh, they were more um, communally oriented in the sense of like, I'm not talking about like communally in the sense of being bodies being around each other, though that was the case as well, but more a stance of like, there was less this feeling of myself cut off from the whole, right? So this is a little bit more of a nuance and more of a subtle thing that I've found culturally here growing up. I grew up south of San Francisco, just growing up in um, uh, uh, American culture generally, and not everyone experiences this, um, but I think a lot of us do. Um, the con- you know, I experienced the conditioning and I experienced the conditioning of hyper-individualism and sort of prizing, well, you're, you're great, Scott. You can have anything you want. You, know, you can even become president, which is like, well, sure, but like it's not about the it's about the me and it becomes more and more about the me. So a lot of us get this training in the me, but what about the we, right? So in general in Tibetan culture, they had more of a sense of the we. And I'm generalizing greatly, right? And I'm talking about pre-Chinese invasion. It's, it, a lot's changing now. Although Tibet itself there's a lot of, there's still amazing things happening there despite all of the sort of um intense um of violence done against Tibetans by the uh, you know Communist Chinese Party. So, anyways, um, what was my point? So, so culturally they had a base of well-being, and then when you put the Lojong teaching on top of it, sort of bashing away at the self-cherishing attitude, it doesn't harm the well-being. Do you see what I'm getting at? So we have to be a little. I'm using this as a base because for us we might need to also take some of these Lojong sayings with a bit of a grain of salt, because they might go the wrong way into more low self-esteem or more of that, which we need that first, okay? It doesn't mean we need it completely before doing Lojong. The reason I bring it up is just to be aware of it. So we're aware that culturally we may need this, we may need to cultivate some kind of self-care, well-being practice, but also not get stuck in that, because where does that end? And does that create happiness, right? So anyways, yeah. My understanding uh, of Lojong, uh, 
includes the idea of giving and taking. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. But giving and taking what? Well, energy or awareness or, you know, like Chandra teaches sometimes, taking in the crap in the world and transforming yeah. it and giving out nectar or whatever. Exactly. And so that can become... Uh, so here this verse is very much talking about this. Because what can happen when we don't have enough well-being is then we treat that practice as a well-being practice, which it wasn't intended for. It's actually intended to go beyond the sort of self, this cocooned self, into a much more bigger space, right? Where often, um, uh, not just Lojong, you're talking about Tonglen, often Tonglen, which is this practice where we visualize sending all of our goodness, being like just getting totally contradicting any miserliness or selfishness, sending it all, even to people we dislike, just wishing them everything, anything good we have, even down to the tiniest morsel of that donut I love, I'm going to send that to them, right? And then I'm going to take on all of their suffering, cancer, HIV, that bad mood they're in this morning, all of that. Not saying we're going to actually take it on. It's the attitude of wanting them, having so much compassion for them, we want them to be free from that, so we take it on. So it's not done as a well-being practice uh, from, from the traditional perspective, but now, now Tonglen, they use it as like a, a, a well-being practice, right? Uh, meaning like it's been sort of Americanized and watered down to that. I'm a bit more traditional that I feel like we should get our well-being from something else. I feel we should get our well-being from actual, like, we can purposely say, I'm intending now to, to de-stress with a certain practice, or I'm going to go to a therapist who can really help me, or I'm going to do that massage, or whatever is going to, or I'm going to take that class to understand my emotions a little bit more, and then be very conscious about it. And then understand that, from a Buddhist perspective, the path of liberation is going beyond both feeling good and feeling bad. We're, that's our aim, to actually go beyond both. And I think then practice can become quite rich because we're not denying that we also need self-care and that we need well-being. But at the same time, we're not just getting stuck there. Do you see what I'm saying? Does this make sense? Maybe some of you are wondering, like, why not get stuck there? And I think you have to explore that for yourself because our society is so materialistic, like so much. Even just to, I was getting so sad today. I'm an extremely materialistic person, so... I'm not saying I'm somehow out of this and then seeing it from the outside. I was getting sad today. Just even my reference point all the time is something and it's some stuff that I'm trying to acquire or engage with or a person or a relationship or uh, you know, a Netflix show to sort of fill some hole inside me. But actually, it's never going to fill that hole because that hole is endless until I heal that hole, right? So anyways, today's not a talk on well-being practices. I do that in other talks. But... Um, I just want to point that out. So, and it'll get more to it through this verse. It's, it's really good you brought it up because the verse describes it. So essentially, um, Lojong practice and like mind training, really what we could say is Buddhism as a whole really um, comes down to um, the entire Buddhist path is a mind training, not just Lojong. Just Lojong refers to these kind of more uh, pithy phrases and sort of way of working with the self-cherishing mind in this certain way to counter that and bring about wakefulness. But um, Buddhism, in general, you could argue, um, one could argue, although I'm sure people would disagree with me, that 
it has religious aspects, but in its essence is not a religion. And then even you could question whether it's a spiritual path. Because ultimately it's trying to go beyond even this notion of who we think we are and what we're engaging in our perceptions. And this is what we call ultimate bodhicitta or ultimate truth in Buddhism. So ultimately it's gaining or accessing our own innate wisdom. And our own innate wisdom is what actually liberates us from, from the bondage of suffering. and liberates us from the bondage of, of uh, our emotional crap, our, our physical pain, all of these kinds of things. And so if you read the life story of, of the Buddha, you'll see throughout his life is sort of an expression of this, um, of engaging the mind training and attaining awakening through it. Yeah. So one way through the Lojong practice is we train in what's called relative and ultimate bodhicitta. So relative bodhicitta is the practices of awakening relating to these phrases and transforming a situation. For instance, like if someone's being a total dick to us, instead of being a dick back to them, we understand they're suffering. You know, like being angry and being a dick to us is also, they're also in pain. There's some reason they're doing that. We don't have to be a doormat, but we don't, we're not, we don't return harm for harm. So that's basic Lojong practice in, in the relative sense. Then ultimate bodhicitta is more going into Lojong in the sense of how we're, we're relating to our innate wisdom. Are we abiding in that or are we confused and not abiding in that? So innate wisdom in Buddhism is like this. I, I talked about it like last night when I, at my teaching like this. It's like, it's like our eyelashes. So unless you have those eyelash extensions, <laughs> normally we can't really see our eyelashes. So from a Buddhist perspective, our innate wisdom is right there. It's so simple. It's not that difficult. It's not a mystery. It's right there on our face. But it's so simple we can't see it. Just like our eyelashes. At least right now I can't see my eyelashes with the light. <laughs> Maybe the certain light I can see it. But either way, our eyelashes are so close we can't see them. So they say our innate wisdom is like this. And our innate wisdom, it's innate to our actual Buddha nature, are the qualities coming from a Mayana perspective, the qualities of awakening that are, are inherent within us. And by practicing meditation, by engaging Lojong, by engaging all these practices, they become methods or means to bring that awakening to fruition. Right? Going back to your question. So, ultimately, in Buddhism and through Lojong practice, we are aiming to go beyond both the problem and the solution. So I mentioned this yesterday, yeah? So usually what happens is there's a problem, right? In, in, the, in the world in general, we have a problem. Then a solution comes, and then the solution becomes the problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? Just think about your life. Is there any solution that also didn't become a problem eventually? And problem here I'm using it in a really broad sense. It could just also mean like, um, like you didn't like it anymore, or you moved on, right? So it can mean something, because everything's impermanent, it's always shifting, it's always changing. So here, um, we relate to our innate wisdom. We try to see our innate wisdom. Yeah, we try to meditate on that eventually in Buddhism. And this is the technique to actually dissolve the solution itself. So ultimately, Buddhism is not even, it's trying to, we use a solution, so we have Lojong as a type of solution, but ultimately, with ultimate bodhicitta, we try to dissolve the solution itself. This is why it's truly a non-dualistic tradition, right? In this sense. We're going beyond subject and object, beyond sort of a dual relationship with things. Yeah? Isn't the Eightfold Path kind of a solution? 
Yes, this is where, like, it's so interesting, uh, where this is where you have, even though you essentially could say Buddhism is not a religion and a spiritual path, we use religious things and we use spiritual pathy things, including a path, including ethics, concentration, all these things. Lojong is also, also included that. I was a monk for nine years, so when I wore robes, it was a mind training. But what I'm saying is all of these are methods. Eventually, the ultimate goal, the awakening itself, dissolves the, the, the method in itself. Not ultimately for, for other people, but for us. So they have this phrase that, you know, it's in, it's in many sutras where the, where the Buddha says, you know, when you, you probably have heard it because they use it a lot in American Buddhism, kind of. Um, when you've taken a boat to another shore, you don't drag the boat on the shore with you. You leave the boat at the shore. But this means when we really do get to the other shore. So until we've gotten to that other shore, which means full awakening of Buddhahood, we need lots of methods. We need lots of training. We need to know how to hold incense properly. Ult- but ultimately, who cares? Like, that's what I'm saying. Ultimately, who cares if you hold incense like this or this? But it has a meaning and it has a way of engaging something. So it is working a solution. But what, what I'm saying is ultimately, Buddhism dissolves even that solution for an individual practitioner. But it's so beautiful, too, because if we can have lots of solutions through Buddhist practice, techniques, methods, it's going to be beneficial for others. It's going to be beneficial for ourselves. So we need them, right? It's just, I think this kind of way of thinking really helps because it gets us out of the attitude of sort of dogma, of holding on to something as like, I know the right way, and this is right, and everyone else is wrong. And it also gets us out of the attitude of like, oh, I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, right? So these are very common extremes in our culture. The Buddha is saying, why can't we hold a stick of incense and at the same time know it's illusory and, we're know, and know why we're using it, right? We're offering it, we're creating merit with that, but we know it's illusory. We're, we're, even if we don't have the experience, we, as a Buddhist practitioner, we, we train in that, to have that awareness. So we're kind of holding it in this space, right? And what I've found is this is one of the richest parts of engaging Buddhist ritual and practice, is then our, our sort of stance in the world expands and sort of our way of being can expand beyond just me as this limited thing. And, we, and also our judgment starts to drop, right? Which is one of our biggest enemies. Not judgment like if I, you know, if I walk in in the middle of the street you know, I'm not judging properly and then I get hit by a car. We need that kind of judgment. I mean the over-judgment of sort of a reference point all the time, especially this reference point of thinking, I'm right and I know what's best. And the reference point of the world is around me, right? So we all have that to a certain extent. So Buddhism through practice and through meditation questions that and opens that po- the possibilities up. Why? Because we have to question, again, like I said in the beginning, we have to question... Whether, whether that <clears throat> holding that reference point of the world is around me or what, however we want to say it is creating uh, joy for us. Is it creating, sure, we can get money, we can get partners, we can have fun, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, is it creating happiness for us? So we have to start to question that. The Buddha said no, right? So anyways, getting to the verse tonight. So, the, the, so we're on this... Uh, the, the, I guess uh, she's up to number 36. So we're, she's getting to the end here, this text, pretty soon. So this verse, I like the name of it. 
Um, so do, you, do you all need, we couldn't find the text, but there is a text if you want to copy. But it's pretty short, uh, this particular verse. So it's don't act with a twist, is, is what it says, right? <laughs> Which, uh, I like that. Uh, also, another translation I found says, um, don't revert to magic. <laughs> and I was scrolling through this other text trying to find a different translation, and I scrolled for like 10 minutes because it's so different, you know? So anyways, I'll talk about this a little bit. So it, it's, it's in relation to sort of what we've already been setting up today together. So basically what, what, what this means is when we, in the context of Lojong, is when we're doing something virtuous... Or, or like forbearing a difficulty, right? Like so, for instance, um, in the context of Tonglen, like we were talking about either. And, and, oh, so so for, the, for some of you who don't know Tonglen, I'll, I'll describe it. So I did already, but I'll, I'll repeat it. So it's this practice where we're, we're visualizing all of our goodness going to somebody or a situation or, or a group of people. And then all of the things that suck going to us. Not so we suck, <laughs> but so that they're re- out of compassion, we're, we're imagining they're relieved from their suffering. Now, the purpose of this is to grow our own compassion and loving kindness. The purpose is not to get cancer and all that kind of thing, right? The purpose is to gain more compassion, more loving kindness, and eventually it moves us in to our innate wisdom, and we get closer to our innate wisdom, which is freedom from a Buddhist perspective. So that's really the purpose. So what this verse is saying is when we do practices like Tonglen, forbearing a little bit of difficulty, meaning it's not fun to like think of taking on someone's disease or I don't even like having a flu. So like when I do Tonglen, for, like I, I imagine taking on people's flu and cold because I hate having a, a head cold and a flu, right? It's a little bit more realistic too than like big, big things because most likely I am going to get a flu or a cold, you know, within the near future. So... So anyways, so the attitude of, of acting with a twist is sort of doing all that, forbearing it, knowing that you're going to feel good from the practice, right? Knowing, ooh, I'm going to get pleasure out of this later. So it's sort of like taking on a, a short-term suffering to get a benefit later. So that's more or less what this verse is talking about. So, you, so don't practice, is what it's saying is, please don't practice compassion or, or loving kindness with, an adit- with a twist. Do it authentically. So essentially what it's really getting at is refining our motivation. And that's mostly what I want to talk about. Um, I will say about the don't revert to magic a little bit, which is in, in Tibetan society and, and cultures that were more related to the earth, also like uh, indigenous cultures, things like that. You know, they rely on magic rituals for, for certain things. And in general, in Buddhism, we don't rely on those for well-being or um, ultimate, ultimate enlightenment, I should say. We don't rely on it for that. So there was kind of like a little bit of a poo-pooing of that in Buddhism, and in, in Tibetan Buddhism, because there was a, still shamanic practices done. And again, it's not saying they're bad. It's just saying if you're looking for enlightenment, we're not going to rely on those temporary means. So what it means to not reverting to magic is saying like in order to... It's like a, a, an analogy saying in order to you know, get rid of adverse situations, you, you practice something like um, contriving a magic ritual to sort of allay the situation or, or discomfort or whatever, right? So it's, it's, just a, it's a very Tibetan thing, so don't worry about it. I just wanted to define it. So, so anyways, so this, this twist 
is really getting at what I feel is what, what's one of the primary things when we practice meditation from a Buddhist perspective, which is refining the motivation, being really clear, why am I doing this, for what purpose, and like what's underneath, even though I might like say, oh yes, like I want liberation, or yes, I want to like uh, relate to um, being a light in the world, something good, something like that. But underneath what's really happening maybe is some other motivation. So in Buddhism, what we're constantly doing is motivating before practice or before a teaching or learning or study. And we're constantly refining that motivation over time into a motivation of bodhicitta. And so bodhicitta is this, from a Mayana perspective, bodhicitta is this, this mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings, which is a very big statement. You know, that might even annoy some people. Because like, what do you mean for the benefit of all sentient beings? That's so pretentious, right? And it is kind of pretentious. But here we have to understand the meaning behind it. The reason why all sentient beings. Because that in itself points to our innate wisdom. Because even just saying the word all sentient beings. Do you guys know what all sentient beings means? Anybody? No? Not just everyone. We're not just talking about the world. All of existence. And from Buddhist philosophical perspective, it's saying infinite beings. Meaning there's no end to beings. It's not like, of course, in the world we have, what, seven, eight billion human beings, something like that, right? And then, of course, probably like billions and billions of animals and whatever, right? We have lots of sentient beings in the world. Some ones we can see, ones we can't see. And then Buddhism talks about other realms and other planets where there's sentient beings. But ultimately, philosophically, which you don't have to accept, it's just a religious position, which is, they say, that it's infinite. So this attitude of bodhicitta, what it's pointing at or essentializing, is we're creating a bro- such a broad compassion and loving kindness that it breaks our concept of what that even means. And then it points at our innate wisdom, which creates awakening, awakening for ourselves. It's such a skillful thing. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, when it's done very like religiously and dogmatically, it, at best it becomes pretentious. At best, I think. But when, when a practitioner really understands the purpose for this, it really leads to awakening. It really leads to Buddhahood, right? It's very special. So, um, what was my point? <laughs> so, oh yeah, so motivation. So really here, it's, this is, as a, in the Mayana path, or, or in, in line with uh, other lineages of Buddhism, we're at least trying to create the motivation of, of liberation where we, we want to attain freedom from, from the bondage of disturbing emotions what we call, and karma, what we call karma and kleshas in, in Sanskrit. So we're at least creating that kind of motivation. And so we're refining that more and more over time. And it's so important because it's like a, it's like a boat when you put it in, in the water. Wherever you point that rudder, the boat is going to go that way. So this is what, what I was emphasizing at the beginning. If we show up in our cushion and we don't, our meditation cushion or to practice meditation wherever we are, and we don't think about motivation, we just sit down and do it, the rudder is just going to go automatic to what our habit is, right? Whatever our habit is in that moment, the rudder will move that way. And honestly, you can look at your own mind. For me, my rudder is mostly pointing at like what's going to make me feel good now. You know what I'm saying? Like what's, how, what's the most pleasure I can get right now? That's my habit, right? And that's not a bad thing in itself. But the Buddha and, and Buddhist philosophy in general is questioning, is that going to create ultimate happiness for us? And he would say no. 
So therefore, the, the process is really refining the motivation over time. First, knowing what a good motivation is. And then we train in that motivation. So we mind train in that. So here, don't act with a twist. Really, it's kind of pointing at, check your motivation. Check why you're doing something. I mean, often we, we do this in life in really important decisions, if we're really honest with ourselves. Like when we're going to marry our, uh, the person we're in love with. You know, we're checking, like, how do I feel about this person? How do I feel about, you know, creating a life with them, possibly buying a house, sharing finances, having kids with them, all that kind of stuff, right? And so if we check that kind of thing, why would we not check our motivation for our spiritual practice, right? Make sense? So, um, and this really points at to avoiding... Um, What's coined, a phrase that got coined is spiritual materialism. So this is, what, again, where our practice can turn into sort of more of an ego-based, uh, self-centered way of just propping up the practice to sort of prop up our ego and make, you know, like, how can I become a, a, a sort of a... Um, instead of thinking, how can I open up and create more space in my life? What's the motivation that creates that? Rather, it's the motivation... How can I get more in my life? Like, what am I going to get out of this, right? So there's a phrase that my friend's teacher used to say to him, which I think is, is amazing, and I, I'm, I'm like going to challenge myself to, I'm trying to think of this phrase more, because I'm often thinking about, you know, if I'm very honest with all of you, my motivation is not that good most of the time, and it's mostly thinking, what can I get? But this sort of, his teacher said, don't think, what can you get? Think, what can you give? Yeah? And this doesn't just mean like in this selfless like Mother Teresa way, like what can I give to other people? It also means like what can I give to myself in the sense of this greater attitude of what I'm trying to, uh, trying to achieve with bodhicitta and what can I give that's in connection uh, and it's about the we and not just about the me, right? So we refine our motivation that way in Buddhism. So, um, and ultimately this leads to integrity, and, and then we don't have to be uh, ashamed of ourselves from this perspective. The Milarepa, a great Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist yogi, who's probably one of the most famous ones, his biography is really, really cool if you guys want to check it out and read it. It's a, it's a fun read. It's a good story. Um, he was like, he went from murdering lots of people in his youth to like attaining enlightenment by the end of his lifetime. So it's, it's a pretty interesting story. But anyways, um, he said, um, my practice is to not be ashamed when I die. That was his, that's what he said. You know? And it, it has a very specific uh, connotation in Buddhism, right, when, when we say that. And, and, and shame here also in Tibetan culture has a different meaning than in our culture. But basically it just means at the time of death, are we going to feel we, we put all the effort into cultivating wakefulness in our life? Did we put the kind of effort and energy and cultivate our motivation to actually bring about uh, something that, could, that is worthwhile. Because at the end of the day, if we really think about it, I'm sorry to bum all of you out. I really am. You know, if this bums you out, I hope it doesn't. But like, we can't take anything with us. You know? Whether you believe in a next life or heaven or whatever or nothing, either way, you can't take anything. I mean, it makes, I, you know, when I think about it, it's quite sad, but it's true. You know, I can't even take my body, let alone a partner or any wealth I accumulate, right? So when we think about it that way, it moves our mind into the spiritual path and really cultivating qualities that, from a Buddhist perspective, do move on with us, from a religious perspective, right? So anyways, I, I think I'm going to stop here and just we can...
discuss and take some questions real quick. But um, yeah, that's about it. Because it's the story says it, man. <laughs> Did you read the story? No, I'm just joking. I have no fucking idea, right? It's just a story, right? Yeah. yeah. In the story, he did. Yeah. In the in the biography, but often Tibetans, they're namtars, what they call in Tibetan. So they're like a little bit like they turn, they put mysticism into it. But I'd say Milarepa's is a little bit one of the ones that is more down to earth, and that's why it's really beloved amongst Tibetans because it's not so flowery. You know, it shows him like turning green from eating too many nettles. And, you know, the sadness of like all he had was a clay pot at that. He got so skinny from doing retreat in caves and not having food and sustenance. All he had was a clay pot. And one day he fell and that even broke. It's like, this is really, you know. Yeah, that's in the beginning too. Yeah. Through the path, through, through practicing dharma, he purified the, the, that negativity. So it shows, and again, because it's a story, right? It shows that even if we think we're the worst person, if we put the effort into our dharma practice, even me, who's a stupid idiot, could get enlightened, right? That's what it proves. Because, you know, from, from a conventional perspective, he did the worst thing, which was to murder not just one person, but lots of people. But even him, he was redeemed. So again, it, it points to our innate wisdom and also points to that um, in, in Buddhism, we don't have a concept of original sin. We have a concept of original purity. Just original purity got a little fucked up along the way, meaning it's covered. Sorry, I should be more clear. The original purity didn't get fucked up. It just got covered. And so the path is bringing that out. And by original purity, you could also tie that into innate wisdom. They're kind of synonymous. It's okay? Yeah. Anybody else? Is it connecting at all with you? Yeah? Does it make any sense? Yeah? Sometimes I can't tell. <laughs> yeah. For me, it, it seems like uh, this idea that you, you know, shouldn't take self-cherishing too far, thinking of everybody else. Um, it seems like, for me at least, I almost kind of have to be selfish at first to get into the practice at all before I'm able to see that 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 is actually the, the yeah. goal, and slowly, but like at first it seems like most of us probably, or especially, I mean definitely me, needs to have that kind of like selfish aspect to get me even there. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying Lo Zhang originally was taught, like these phrases were a bit more of a secret practice. They weren't like widely taught, um, because it's, it's sort of, First, we need a base, just like you said. We need to have some kind of stability in our meditation. We need to, I don't know if we have to feel good, but I would say we need to have some sense of feeling okay. Like the way my teacher says it is like, we, we should, as a human being, we have a right to a type of okayness that's not based off of a condition. And what that's so hard in our culture, because everything's so conditional, right? So yeah, completely right, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Molly. You might have to speak up so I can. Just dropping in because I need to sit there. And it is resonating because to me, um, there's a phrase that we say in recovery groups that put your own mask on first. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, completely, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, 
Yeah, and then I think the, the challenge is understanding when, when enough is enough, meaning like when are we okay enough in ourselves? And I don't think it's a point. It's just sort of, I think we do both, right? We do both. And, and what I'm advocating lately, I think, Molly, you, maybe you were at this talk when I advocated it, culturally we need to start connecting more in with the we as a stance, you know? Because, like, we can come to, together as a community physically, but are we really with each other? Some of the points of the most isolation in my life are in large groups. So I'm questioning that now in myself. Why is that? Why does that happen? So when I hang out with a bunch of people, am I really with them? Or, I mean, ultimately, we're not with people in the sense of, like, we still experience our own reality, right? But, so I'm, trying, I'm starting to see, like, maybe for us culturally, some of our well-being and okayness is tied into, of course, not conditional on others, but maybe reframing the sort of stance we have and, and what, what community means and getting a little bit out of individualism, yeah. Was that like a dude Siri that just popped up? It was like Siri for dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it sounded. Um, I'll answer the first part first. And I think that leads to like the cultural play I was talking about, where like, like these phrases are meant to like dig at you, kind of. Like they're supposed to dig at the self-cherishing mind. That's why I was saying we need to have some base of well-being before I think there can be a dig. Otherwise, it goes the wrong direction. But not for everybody, but for some of us. So I think that's why. Because culturally, they were meant to like be like, look at you and how you are. It's a little bit insulting, right? So that's why, because that's the, the Tibetan culture they're coming out of, not because they wanted to insult people. It was like really for people who already have a pretty stable practice and they need some challenge. Because one of the biggest dangers in our Dharma practice eventually is that we get cozy. And when you get cozy, it's, it's almost over. Meaning it's very hard to attain liberation once we get cozy. But as far as an affirmative, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe you can come up with one, I don't know. Uh, don't act with a twist. Uh, be, yeah, I'll have to think about it. It's nothing off the top of my head. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Be genuine. Yeah, like act with integrity, something like that. Yeah. Walk the line. What do you say, walk the line? <laughs> yeah. Walk your talk, something like that. Yeah. Not going to the easier side. Yeah. We bring the magic into shamanism or to Yeah, I mean, I don't personally have a problem with, with um, magic or anything like that. It, I mean, I think magic is slowly disappearing for our world because we're so intellectual and scientific. Uh, but, um, but, but anyways, I think the yeah, it was just from the Buddhist perspective that, yeah, of understanding magic's not going to lead to liberation. But yeah, I think what you're saying could, could be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, um, me? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, 
maybe I'm touching on something that a few other people mentioned, but I'm a little uh, unclear about, it seems like there's a threshold, well-being, self-cherishing. I'm a little confused about the differences. And also, I, I'm kind of intuitively thinking that when we're talking about self-cherishing, that almost sounds like sort of an ego involvement. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I'm so pious or I'm so evolved or something. Like, I'm doing this practice and look at me. I'm, I have exactly the right position and I look very correct the way I'm doing it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm also curious about um, if you're saying that you have to approach this sort of practice from a certain level or threshold of well-being, what that looks like. What yeah, is no, type of yeah, no, that's a really good question. And, and just to, to be clearer, I was saying that this is my shitty opinion about us culturally, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. It's not in the teachings traditionally because they don't have to talk about that. Because generally, and I'm very, I'm generalizing a lot here in old Tibet, from, and this is not coming from me, it's coming from my teachers who are Tibetan who have said this to me, um, that generally there's, there's not the kind of deep, like the Dalai Lama didn't even hear of low self-esteem until he started traveling to the West. It just wasn't even in the lexicon of Tibetans or depression or things like They have depression and it can be like a disorder in the energy body and then they'll treat it with Tibetan medicine. But it's a, they call it like a, a lung disorder or a wind disorder. But um, he didn't see the type of low self-esteem in his culture until he came to the West. So... So then I'm just bringing it up for that as a cultural thing. But as far as like what the level, I mean, what your question is, I think a really good one, that's individual. And I think that's, diff it's tough to know. And that's why I was giving the counter to that, which is when is enough well-being enough and what is well-being? And I kind of define it when I was talking, answering her question a little bit, that, and this is from one of my teacher's perspectives, that well-being in this sense is just this sense of okayness. It's not like a feeling of like, amazing joy or um, bliss or something like that or like awesome pleasure and everything's always going good for us because of course life isn't like that. It's just a feeling that we can go through ups and downs, we can feel shitty, we can feel okay sometimes or good, but generally like we're okay. There's not a sense of hollowness where we're constantly feeding that with material objects, right? And it's a little, still a little vague, but it's a, it's a tough thing to describe because that sense of okayness is very subtle because it's not this big feeling of joy. It's just this sense of like, where we can just sit in a park and be okay with that and, and, and not just temporarily. Like it's just okay and we're okay in the world. So like a good example is when you, there are still cultures that haven't luckily been destroyed by American style capitalism yet. And so um, that, that is kind of a joke, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> So if you, go to, yeah, if you go to those cultures, you can find people who have this kind of okayness and they can mirror it for you. So for instance, some, when I go to Nepal and India, some Nepalis have this kind of thing where they, they're just relaxed, you know, and, and shit is not working. Like the, the lights are not working. The toilet doesn't work. The internet, it doesn't work. Cell phones always work, <laughs> of course, but nothing else works. But, you know, some, that person is okay. Not everyone, but the person I'm talking about. Like a kind of a rural villager. It's like, okay. And so my teacher says that in Nepal, uh, no problem is the problem. <laughs> because it's sort of this attitude, whatever is happening, no problem. But that's the problem because nothing gets fixed, right? But anyways, um, so we can see still pure people who are mirroring this. I actually did, had no concept of it until somebody... 
I, I did see people who were a little bit different from me emotionally in this way. And then my teacher gave me practices to work on developing that okayness. Because a lot of um, self-care techniques often are like, we take them like pills. And they just become like a temporary pill. So we don't get the okayness, we just get pleasure. So that's also motivation. So even when, when we go for like a relaxing day somewhere, uh, which is really important, we can motivate like, okay, well... I can enjoy this, but also, like, how can I tap into okayness, which, again, isn't going to come from that day, because it can't be conditional. Because okayness as a thing, as a human being, it's not a conditional thing. It's just, it's a stance or a way we're em- embodying our experience. But we can talk more about it. Usually when I talk about, uh, um, sometimes I'll teach on, like the day long last week was kind of talk, more talking about this. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should stop. <laughs> a little after nine. So um, we'll just take a second to dedicate all the, whatever came up for us, whatever, especially just the energy and effort we put into practicing together tonight and discussing together, thinking about the subject of Lojong and Buddha Dharma in general. So all of that energy and juice that we put in. Now we're going to move it in the right direction. So we, we motivate in the beginning, and then at the end we seal it with a dedication. So I hope some of you who are newer to Buddhism uh, maybe gain, gained a little more understanding of what we mean by wakefulness in Buddhism, which is not just temporary happiness, but actually going beyond the bounds of, what, of, of a subject-object reference point that's actually the true bondage for us, going beyond just the clinging mind. So we're going to aim our dedication at that, that due to all this effort tonight, may become a cause to go beyond ordinary clinging, to go beyond strictly only a self-cherishing stance. And we do this with all others, with the we in mind, all sentient beings, no matter how infinite. And so due to this merit, may we attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. And however that resonates for you, you can just feel that in your heart. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And um, tomorrow night, um, I have a five-week series going right now, so you're all welcome to join. To, oh, not tomorrow night. Next Tuesday, 7.30 to 9, for the next three Tuesdays.